Time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got a lot of security updates, including news about LinkedIn, Flamer, Stuxnet, and your questions. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 356, recorded June 6th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 145. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup, automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files, only $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. And by... Go to Assist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world with one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. For 30 days free, visit gotoassist.com and use the offer code SECURITY. It's time for security now. Couldn't be a better day to cover security with Mr. Steve Gibson, our explainer-in-chief. He's here today from grc.com, and it's a Q&A episode, so we've got a dozen great questions from our audience. Good day, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you again, as always. We've uh, had yes. an eventful week, not surprisingly. Um, I think it was Friday that I tweeted to my Twitter followers the news that uh, an investigative journalist with the New York Times had uncovered a multiply sourced report that, uh, that one of the, his first acts after being inaugurated in office was that our Barack Obama, the president of the U.S., uh, ordered a speed up in our the waves of cyber attacks that the U.S. was waging against Iran. Um, so we have some news there. Of course, that comes on the heel of last week's first opening discussions of flame, um, the what's now being called a super cyber weapon uh, by Kaspersky, who's been looking into it further. We've got a bunch of information about that new and interesting things um i was tweeting a lot of links uh as i was setting up the notes for the podcast so anybody who wants links to these things uh just check my twitter feed sggrc and you can get links to these various uh important things but we have a bit of uh, sadness yeah in the sci-fi arena um last night we got the word from his daughter that uh, Ray Bradbury passed away at the age of 91. 91. Of course, I mean, that's a yeah. ripe old, lay, old age, you know. Yeah, he looked yeah. good yeah. for 91. Um, he, of course, was, I think, probably most famous for Fahrenheit 451, which was just an amazing book at Martian the time. Chronicles 2, I think, yeah. yeah. Yes, and also he wrote Something Wicked This Way Comes. Oh, what a great book that is. Short story. Yeah. A lot of short stories. And and he's credited with with being more of a literary influence on the genre. Yeah. He disliked the term sci-fi. Um, he considered he only really wrote 
sci-fi he, he considered was the, his Fahrenheit 451 story. The rest he considered more, you know, flights of fancy. But yeah. his writing was so good <sighs> that he was trying to bring, you know, again, more of a literary feel to to science fiction. I think one of the so, great science fiction authors in the, this is a great a moment an opportunity to go back and reread. I know that a lot of geeks I'm so, I'm following on Facebook and Twitter said, "Oh, I'm going to reread, you know, The Martian Chronicles or Fahrenheit 451." One of my favorites and I refer to it a lot is The Velt. That's a great one. In fact, they have a I didn't see this. I might have to download a, a dramatization of The Velt on uh, mm-hmm. on uh, audible.com. The Illustrated Man. What a and you're right. They, oh, these, yeah. These are not really sci-fi. Right. They're fantastical tales. Um, right. Martian Chronicles is. Fahrenheit 451 is. Both of those just fantastic. Uh, boy, he's a, st- a great storyteller. One of the best writers. And I think one of the reasons he defies genre is because he's such a good writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, really goes well beyond... Uh, what we're normally used to in the science fiction. And truly... sadly, now we need to use the past tense yeah. when referring yeah. to Ray, but certainly not his work. His work will live on forever. And a great supporter of science. And I think Ray Bradbury, uh, an inspiration many scientists uh, for uh, their work. I think that often we found out that scientists uh, look back to what they read, like the Martian Chronicles or Dandelion Wine or whatever, and so we're really inspired my work. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, this Friday is going to be June 8th. Mm. Two days from now yes. is the release in the theaters of Prometheus. Oh, I'll be in line. Oh, goodness. I'll yeah. be in line. This is the prequel. You know, it's funny. I know a number of people who didn't realize this. The prequel yep. to Alien. Yes. And uh, brought to us also by Ridley Scott, as was Alien. Um, HBO has a short 15-minute pr- uh, presentation called Prometheus First Look. I've, I've not seen it, but my TiVo sucked it in this morning at 9 uh, or noon on the East Coast, and I know that it's scat- the, uh, it, through the HBO's schedule. It's scattered around, so anybody who's interested may be able to find it um, coming up. Uh, and I only I, a buddy of mine told me about it, and apparently one, one of the takeaways he had was that the set of the new James Bond movie, which is in production, was like a postage stamp compared <laughs> to the set of Prometheus. You can I tell guess it's a were, giant soundstage. Yeah. It is a huge... Actually, yeah. I think it is the largest set of soundstage environments ever made. Or I mean, there's something like that about it. I didn't... I haven't, again, I haven't seen this. this Just the trailer. When you see the trailer, you, you could tell they're in a very large space. Yeah. Yeah. Cannot wait. Anyway, so I'm Cannot very excited. Wait. Yeah, this is going to be an exceptional and, movie. And what, again, again, just anecdotally, I've you know the, the 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 phenomenal scene that you know that branded everyone who saw it in Ridley Scott's first movie, Alien, was the classic scene of this creature erupting from the person's chest. Oh. That you know we've never seen anything like that ever. And apparently, this movie has something different, but even more so. So, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for it. That was so terrifying. It, it was just amazing. Now, uh, of course, uh, Sigourney Weaver, who uh, was the star of the first two, will not be in this one, I'm sure. Um, who is who is the who are the stars of this? Well, we have Charlize. Charlize is, Theron. Oh, she's yes. wonderful. One yeah, of our she, best uh, actors. 
Boy, and she's we good. have an, we have another uh, another Android. And in fact, over on the YouTube uh, collection of YouTube videos for this, they're they're linked from the IMDb um, article. There is a full length commercial that that Wayland, who who is the you know corporate interest behind all of this. Remember, they were the yeah. people that did terraforming on, on aliens. Yeah. Anyway, they, they, they have an ad for their Android where he's, you know, demonstrating himself and so forth. So, oh, wow. They're smart. I'll tell of- you, they've gotten very smart about marketing this stuff, haven't they? Yep. Yep. Yeah. They just, they've got a series of, uh, this isn't, there isn't just one. It turns out there are many ads from uh, Prometheus. <laughs> wow. This is, uh, this is interesting. Look at ads for all of their products. Wow. I they're so smart been, about they're so smart I, about doing this stuff now. They put yep. a lot of energy into well, uh, into these Apparently markets. Ridley Scott decided he was going to try to outdo himself and from everything I've heard, uh it it this new one is going to be a contender. So, wow. I think it may be the movie of the summer. Yep. Well, there you go. Good and bad so, news in sci-fi. So, yes. Um New York Times, David Sanger uh, put together an article. The title was Obama Order Sped Up Wave of Cyber Attacks Against Iran. And I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs, which, since this is well written, it's a long story. It's five pages on their website. But, you know, this was properly written, so all of the meat is at the front. Uh, so he wrote, From his first months in office, President Obama secretly ordered increasingly sophisticated attacks on the computer systems that run Iran's main nuclear enrichment facilities, significantly expanding America's first sustained use of cyber weapons, according to participants in the program. Mr. Obama decided to accelerate the attacks begun in the Bush administration and codenamed Olympic Games, even after an element of the program accidentally became public in the summer of 2010 because of a programming error that allowed it to escape Iran's uh, Natanz plant and sent it around the world on the Internet, which is interesting. We, this is stuff we did not know before. Pre, prior to that, it was contained there and it got loose. So computer security experts who began studying the worm, which had been developed by the United States and Israel, gave it a name, Stuxnet. At a tense meeting in the White House Situation Room within days of the worm's escape, Mr. Obama, Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr., and the director of the Central Intelligence Agency at the time, Leon E. Panetta, considered whether America's most ambitious attempt to slow the progress of Iran's nuclear efforts had been fatally compromised. Should we shut this thing down, Mr. Obama asked, according to the members of the president's national security team who were in the room with him. Told it was unclear how much the Iranians knew about the code and offered evidence that it was still causing havoc, Mr. Obama decided that the cyber attacks should proceed. In the following weeks, the Natanz plant was hit by a newer version of the computer worm, and then another one after that. The last of that series of attacks a few weeks after Stuxnet was detected around the world temporarily took out nearly 1,000 
of the 5,000 centrifuges Iran had spinning at the time to purify uranium. And so that's the start of a five-page story. Again, uh, you can easily find it at the New York Times, or I tweeted it Friday of Where last week. Where do you week, stand so we, on this? We had a good debate on Twitter on Sunday. Well, uh, and actually this. one of our questions that we were going to come to was a listener who poses that. So I yeah. thought we'd maybe hold off good. discussing right. it until we get to the question. Because okay. I do, I, I exactly with you, Leo, I wanted to, to discuss, I mean, this, the, you know, the controversial nature of it. Right. Okay, so flame update. Um, I also tweeted early this week, shortly after Microsoft released it, there is a very important update which Microsoft produced in an emergency out-of-cycle release. It's small. It's 91K. Uh, at least it was in the case of my Win 7 box, which I updated the moment I turned it on here to run Skype. Um, because... It turns out that the, the components of Flame were digitally signed by Microsoft certificates. <laughs> uh, faux, faux certificates? Phony certificates? Real no, real certificates. <laughs> the, the, That's not a good way to hide your tracks. Now, I mean, and when I first heard this, I was thinking, you know, I wonder if this wasn't arranged. If I mean, if this is now the if we're pretty much clear that this is U.S. cyber espionage, if if the CIA or the NSA wouldn't have gone to Microsoft and said, you know, the world is using Windows. Now, that's that's another real <laughs> discussion point is the fact that, you know, the entire world is using, I mean, dependent upon operating system software from a, co a company based in Seattle, United States. Right. Uh, I mean, these, these machines, Stuxnet is a Windows virus. Yes, exclusively. Yeah. And yet here, here there are, you know, Macs are available worldwide, Linux in all of its flavors. It would be, e I mean, way safer for all foreign governments not to use a U.S.-based U.S. created operating system, yet they all are. Um, there was a blurb I saw in a Kaspersky um, blog or a, 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 a summary that said that, oh, no, it was from the, uh, the Iranian cert saying that high-level Iranian officials had been infected by flame, which is a Windows-only worm. So they're using Windows and I have to think, wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, that, Microsoft crazy. would never screw us. <laughs> never. Anyway, so, so what happened was some clever person, and we'll never know whom, discovered that certificates issued for Microsoft terminal server could be used to sign code. And that should have never happened. It so it wasn't never... Microsoft that signed the code. Somebody who owned a licensed terminal server? Is that what I'm hearing? As I understand it, you, um, there was a, there, there's a class of enterprise terminal services. And, and, a, and Microsoft offered a service where you could get certificates from Microsoft and use them to secure terminal server. 
And those certificates, which and these are what, what are now blacklisted, they chained straight up to Microsoft's root authority, um, certificate authority. And there, there are three of them that are implicated in this. And Microsoft, that's what this emergency out of cycle patch is. So this is, is a, this is a hole in larger than just Stuxnet. It means any bad guy who had a license for terminal services could write yes. certificates. Yes. That would be trusted by your browser. And what no one, yes. And what no, well, no, trusted by Windows. By Windows. So these are, because this would get this, Leo, they also arranged a man in the middle, and this is something we've dreaded forever, a man in the middle attack on Windows update. When, when, and this is the one of the propagation mechanisms for flame wow. in LANs that we discussed last week. Um, there is a component that we actually first talked about as being insecure. You and I discussed it on October 19th of 2006. We can prove it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in the show notes. It's the way I found it. It's, it's Web Proxy Auto Discovery Protocol, WPAD. And I talked about how when you launched IE, there was sometimes a long delay before it started. And I, and I remember watching, I think it might have been Greg, my tech support guy, at, our, at GRC's offices at the time. He launched IE, and it sat there stalled for a while. And I said, oh, Greg, you've got to turn off auto configure. And then IE will launch much faster. Because what happens is IE sends out a, a query for WPAD dot and then the machine name dot and then the, the domain name looking for a file which, is, which contains a, um, a script for proxying your communications from inside a corporation. So Flame sets up a server that responds to these queries within a LAN, which then routes the, the machine's traffic through it, which allows it to get itself in the man-in-the-middle position, and then it maliciously signs its own components and, and sets these up as, as Windows auto-update entities and sends them to those machines as security patches from Microsoft. This is as bad as it gets. Wow. And this, uh, how long, I mean, because could somebody have been using this now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know, we, we've discovered it only because this was co here, heretofore completely unknown. Jeez. And it's only by reverse engineering flame which, Which by has, the way, we has been around for years. So yes, yes, this, this hole's been around for a long time. I presume. Well, yeah, the hole's been around forever. Oh, boy. What wasn't appreciated was that that the the terminal server certificates would be accepted as code signing certificates. So and to make that, this clear, this is not uh, Microsoft was not helping with Flame. The authors of Flame well, discovered. We don't. We don't. We know. don't. No, right. because what Microsoft certainly has plausible deniability. If, you know, if someone, if a, if, a, if a U.S. entity said to Microsoft, we need a way to sign right. code for national security reasons, and we, 
And you need plausible deniability because it will be found. That you know, We know it's going to be found. So when it is, we need to have a way that this wasn't you colluding with the U.S. government, which would, of course, destroy trust in Microsoft forever. So this is, I mean, you know, this is just one more mistake. We, we talk about Microsoft mistakes every week. And so, oh, here, oops, sorry about that. And so they immediately, you know, revoked those those certificates that the, this code signing depends upon. And that does now shut down the propagation of flame, which is no big deal because, get this, Leo, within hours of the discovery of flame, the entire command and control network shut down. Wow. So yes. they knew it was discovered. <laughs> yes. That was a response was to being discovered. Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay, oh. so... Uh, so was that's that a response? Update. Was that a response to news stories? It was. It was as I as I remember. It was Kaspersky's discovery after they un, uh, uh, being asked for uh, being asked by the ITU to look into this thing called Wiper, which was wiping out hard drives, and that right. still has not been found because, of course, now they're off pursuing something way more interesting, which is flame. Um, but yes, at short within hours of the, the, the announcement of this new thing that was even then still unknown, the command the 80 domains in a, in a command and control network went dark. So <laughs> I, I just, this oh will be man, a there's a movie here, I'll tell you. Yes. I could see the so, call going out. Shut her down. So I did tweet two links uh, earlier today uh, with the details. I, I'm going to summarize some of them from Kaspersky Lab that has been and is continuing to reverse engineer this. And, and as I said last week, and here's an example of it, information is going to be coming out incrementally. We'll certainly be covering it because it's fascinating. This is, you know, this is the most sophisticated super cyber weapon espionage tool that has ever been seen. So Kaspersky wrote, in collaboration with GoDaddy and OpenDNS, Kaspersky Lab succeeded in sinkholing most of the malicious domains used by Flame's CNC infrastructure. The following details summarize the results of the analysis. First, the Flame CNC infrastructure, which had been operating for years, went offline immediately after Kaspersky Lab disclosed the discovery of the malware's existence last week. Currently, there are more than 80 known domains used by Flame for CNC command and control servers and its related domains, which have been registered between 2008 and 2012. During the last four years, servers hosting the Flame command and control infrastructure moved between multiple locations, including Hong Kong, Turkey, Germany, Poland, Malaysia, Latvia, the United Kingdom, and Switzerland. Even Switzerland. Huh. Yeah. The Flame command and control domains were registered with an impressive list of fake individuals' identities 
and with a variety of registrars going back as far as 2008. According to Kaspersky Lab's sinkhole, infected users were registered. No, so infected users, that is people who are carrying the flame virus, were registered in multiple regions, including the Middle East, Europe, North America, and the Asia and Asia Pacific. The flame attackers seem to have a high interest in PDF, office, and AutoCAD drawings. <laughs> the data uploaded to the Flame Command and Control is encrypted using relatively simple algorithms. Stolen documents are compressed using the open source ZLib and modified PP. They wrote PPDM, but they mean they meant PPMD, which is a uh, partial matched statistical compression technology. And they said Windows 7 64-bit, which we previously recommended as a good solution against infections with other malware, seems to be effective against Flame. So really? Flame, That's interesting. So the 64-bit version of Windows 7, uh, the, the that malware kernel, the is targeted. Locking, well, it's the malware is targeted at 32-bit code. Ah. And it's tight, tightly so it's, written. It's, it's nothing Microsoft did. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, elsewhere, under observations, they wrote, when a computer is infected with flame, it uses a default configuration, which includes five command and control server domains. Before contacting these servers, the malware validates its internet connection by attempting to access www.microsoft.com, windowsupdate.microsoft.com, and www.verisign.com over HTTPS. If the connection is successful, it will proceed to talk to the command and control domains. Some of the fake identities used to register domains include names such as Adrian Leroy, Arthur Vangen, George Wirtz. Vandelay Industries. (laughs) (laughs) These are made up, obviously. Yeah, uh, Ivan Blix, Gerald Ree, Carol Schmid, <laughs> Maria Weber, Mark Plotter, Mike Bassett, and so on. Um, many of these forged identities have fake addresses in Germany and Austria, notably Vienna. We do not know why, writes Kaspersky, Vienna was such an attractive choice for the attackers. Because that's the where the sausages I- come from. <laughs> the fake attackers used addresses of hotels, various shops and organizations, doctor's offices, or simply non-existent addresses. But in, in, interestingly, in many cases, the, the domains were registered to, for, for example, ho- valid hotel addresses in Germany and Austria. So who knows why? So really interesting stuff we're learning. This is like and, spy uh, games. This is good it, stuff. And it's true. I mean, it's real. Yikes. So, wow. Um, In other news, this was something that just surfaced last week after we recorded the podcast. But uh, And I I attempted to follow it up, but not assiduously. So I don't have any more details. But a number of people tweeted the news that IE version 10 would have do not track enabled by default. 
which is huge. No kidding. Yeah. And, and again, as we know, it doesn't as um, it, it doesn't proactively prohibit, but it proactively declares that its user does not wish to be tracked. And we're beginning to see maturing behavior on the part of, of trackers to, to be responsible in various ways about their behavior relative to the do not track header. So this is just all good news. Um, also, Apple released an iOS security paper, which I've not yet had the chance to go over, but I wanted to let people know that I was aware of it and, and I will go over it, see what it says. And if it looks like it's worth a podcast, then we'll give it one. Otherwise, I'll, I'm sure I'll at least summarize it because it looks like it had lots of interesting stuff. And that um, that touches on another story I'll be talking about in a second where iOS, due to it being the most secure platform available, is pulling the, the greatest dollar amount for... The, in the sale of exploits from hackers who find them to organizations that want them. Wow. And government agencies have become the top bidder for these exploits. <laughs> Great. I know. Uh, it just gets crazier. Um, in the news this morning was LinkedIn in the doghouse. Uh, LinkedIn, a couple of days ago, was caught somewhat controversially sending the calendar, all the calendar details of people's um, LinkedIn profiles to LinkedIn's servers. LinkedIn defends themselves saying, well, yes, because we offer the facility to, you know, again, sort of the social networking model, we'll, we'll show you the LinkedIn profiles of everyone you're meeting with before you meet with them. And so to do that, we need to know what your meetings are going to be. So I was like, okay, fine. Well, in the meantime, um, six Yeah, but they million. didn't tell anybody they were going to do that. They just No, did they it. didn't. Yeah. Yes. Um, you think six, these companies would learn. Yeah. So here's speaking of learning. 6,458,020 unsalted SHA-1 hashed LinkedIn passwords were recently posted to the internet. Oh, see, now I didn't worry because I saw the SHA one that they were hashed and they were not salted. So and they are they are being decrypted at a at a high rate. Oh, because it's not. Yeah, every LinkedIn person listening to this, you should immediately change your password. Um, I'm going to be a honeypot. I just want to see what they do. Okay. Because yeah. what can they do with my LinkedIn well, account? Okay, I mean, so they cares? so consider what they can do if they can log in to your account. Um, if are you using that password anywhere else? No, I checked immediately to see if I had used a unique password, and I had. Okay, good. So I um, so I mean I it'd be interesting to see if I get hacked, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't I really mean, use LinkedIn. You know, in fact, I I canceled it uh, recently, and it some reason did not cancel. There's a needle in a haystack aspect because they do have 6.5 million people ah. to work from. So, so it's only what's happened. It's only one percent. Yes. So it's a small piece of the entire database, and 
you know, you were one in 6.5 million. Right. What's happened is people have been looking through the list and many people are finding their, the hash of their password in the list. And passwords that are dumb, like Facebook or LinkedIn sucks, for example, are examples from, <laughs> from, from Y Combinator. Uh, I posted a link to this Y Combinator page where there's a really interesting discussion for anyone who wants to f- per- pursue this and look into it. Because it looks like after the hackers find a match, they put five, they replace the beginning of the hash with five zeros so that we'll no longer match again, to essentially flag it as, okay, we've, we've reversed this hash. Remember, SHA-1 is the, among, it's not as bad as MD5, that's worse, but SHA-1 is the worst, um, among the two worst hashes LinkedIn could have used without salting it, because extremely high-speed um hashing hardware exists. I mean, if the if if the NSA in their new Utah facility are doing anything, it's building massive rainbow tables for <laughs> SHA1. So here's my would, question. There's a site leaked in l e a k e d n.org. <laughs> nice. That says uh provide your password which we hash with JavaScript view source to verify or an SHA-1 hash of your password below, and we'll check to see if it's in the database. Cool. So is this safe? I mean, I'm going to give them my yes. password. Yes, I would say it's absolutely safe. I'm going to change it gonna, right away anyway, I guess. So. They're, yes, they're, they're going to do it locally. I would say change your password, then, and then give them your old password and see if it was there. Um, there were some posts that I saw where people had changed their password three weeks ago, uh-huh. just coincidentally, and their old password was in this list. Oh, so it's meaning, an older database. Yes, meaning that it's at least three weeks old because in this one instance it had the, that person's prior, presumably, you know, they didn't use a password like Facebook that would have been in there anyway. Um, but it was, they had their old one and, but, and, and not the new one. Of course, it means nothing to have not to have the new one because – as you said, it's a small portion of the entire LinkedIn database. And, and but, all the hashes begin with four zeros or, I mean, no, no, no. What appears to be happening is that oh, normal look. SH. Look at this. Your password was leaked, but has not yet been cracked. <laughs> okay. I guess I actually, it was 10%, six and a half million out of 64 million. So I had a one in 10 ah. chance. Okay. And yours was there. I'm in there. They say, wow, they found my hash. There's my hash. Wow. Yeah, so what happens is uh, after it's been cracked, the crackers replace the first five characters with zeros, which SHA-1 would have a very low probability uh, of doing. I get it. That, so that's how that's they know a, you've been cracked or not. Yes, yeah, so there's a simple flag that allows them to to quickly do it. So, so just, wow, yours got reversed. Yeah. And they, was, was that one, was it complex? Was it gobbledygook? Or was it something that was like No, it was gobbledygook. It was a, uh, it was a generated wow. pass. And see, that just demonstrates that SHA-1 is that insecure. It is so fast. Well, wait a minute. SHA- they said they hadn't been cracked yet. Oh, hadn't been. Well, Had no, not many, been cracked. Oh, that's a very good point because fa- things like Facebook and LinkedIn socks. Those are so easy to crack. Have been cracked, yes. Mine was a r- completely random long password that has apparently not been cracked yet. Which is as strong as you could get it against SHA-1. Right. 
It would take a brute force. So um, explain for- to me, you've explained this before, why salting is necessary. Why, why SHA-1 is, it's a, SHA-1 is secure. It's a secure uh, hash. It's, it, okay, it's secure. The problem is that it's old and it's well-known. And many organizations like, well, and once upon a time, many operating systems were using it to hash passwords without salt. Right. So the NSA could build a table that where they, they manually put in every combination of, of, of like, you know, just started A, B, C, D, E, standard brute force password cracking, run it through SHA and record the output and build a dictionary, which they then index in the sequence of the output so that when they have a hash, they can look that up in this index and immediately see what password generates the hash. They wouldn't know that that was your password, but they would know that that password generates the same hash, which would then allow them to impersonate somebody using a password that generated that hash. So that would allow them, for example, to log in. So, so what salting does is it just, it's like it customizes SHA-1. If you did a, a, a pseudo-random salt, meaning that for any password the user puts in, before hashing, you append your own gobbledygook to it, then that would generate a different SHA-1 hash than if, if somebody just put Facebook into SHA-1 and got Facebook's SHA-1 hash. So if the bad guys knew what the gobbledygook was, they could still do forward attacks. But it's much less likely that the bad guys would know what your salt was than just a, a, obtaining the database of passwords. Which uh, looks if the like, salt was stor- stored with the database, that would be bad. That would be bad. And again, for, for their dumbness. Yeah. But hopefully somebody who had the smarts to do salting would understand the need to separate the salt from the right. database. Right. And in this case, we know that it was not salted because you can put Facebook into SHA-1 ah. and, get, and get the same hash as, as one Got sitting it. there in the, in in the the LinkedIn database. So that's how this leakedin.org site works. I gave it my password. It ran an SHA1 hash against it. Right on your local browser. In JavaScript. And yep. then presented me with the hash, which it then I said, okay, now search for the hash. And it said, yep. yeah, the hash was in the database. Exactly. And so if you could do it forward, you could presumably do it backward. Leakedin.org. That's yeah. a, that and, was and fun. I changed my it, password. It, I decided not to be on but that's good. Um, it's because you know, I mean, it, it's incremental. You know, incremental loss of of privacy is yeah. is still a loss. Yeah. It's not that you can do it backwards. It's that you can do everything forwards. Yeah. So you keep putting things. You keep in trying the, stuff. Got it. Yes. Try try things in the forward direction and and see what comes out. Which is why my then, truly random uh, password is going to be very difficult because they would have to 
try stuff. It would only be bad passwords that would be guessed. Exactly. And so the bad passwords are all being found fast yeah. because that's what they're trying first. So they'll use uh, presumably a dictionary of some kind where they just try common passwords like ABC123 or ADASDF. Yeah, and apparently they, they did try LinkedIn sucks because it's one of the ones that has been has been. Packed. I bet you a lot of people had that password. <laughs> Um, so if uh, you did as I did, and I've just done again, I, I use LastPass to randomly generate a password. It seems highly unlikely that a good random password of a, of a sufficient length would be guessed. Very, very unlikely. Yeah. And also consider this is not a high value get right. anyway. As right. you, you mean, no credit you are almost you are almost not caring right. if someone did get your password. It's like right. ah, let's see yeah, if I get deal. hacked because yeah. it's LinkedIn. Who cares? Who cares? Exactly. So. Yeah, it's exactly. So if it were really high value database, then um, first of all, one would hope that the security would be better. But then you really would want to change your password and there would be more motivation on the part of the attackers to crack people's hashes and figure out what their passwords were. But in this case, and we're, we're presuming the usernames were stolen too. They only posted the passwords. The presumption is they have matching usernames. The, thus, the reason they're going to, through all this trouble of, of tracking these things down. So there's, I think, well, you know, next week we will be we'll saying, know. well, yeah. here's the damage that was done right. because lots of LinkedIn users are going to find their accounts were hacked. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of a double strike, as you said, because of this uh, calendar uh, stuff. Maybe I would guess a, a few people would take the opportunity to cancel their LinkedIn account at this point. Well, yes, that'd be another and, thing you could do. And um, it is definitely a black eye. It is. It is way. We're way beyond the point where there's any excuse for this being the quote put security in quotes the security unquote architecture for LinkedIn. You know. A substantial, out in the front of the pack, state of the art web based system to be, to be having unsalted SHA passwords. That's nuts. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just like you know, that's a decade ago technology. All the OSs are off of that. Every, everyone who's doing security knows what they're doing are off of that. So this was just written by you know somebody in the beginning who didn't think it was going to amount to much, and you know it did. Briefly. Actually, LinkedIn can tweet on my behalf, so I'm glad I did not let somebody use uh, That yep. wouldn't be good. That'd uh, not be good. No. So there was an article a couple of weeks ago that I meant to talk about, and it just sort of fell through the cracks, but I saw it again, and I thought, okay, I just need to mention this. And that was – and then this is all in this domain that we're in today, talking about, you know, state-sponsored cyber war – and that was the question of Chinese putting back doors in our chips. There was a rather inflammatory claim made by a company that reverse engineers chips by popping the lids off of them and looking, looking at them and essentially figuring out what the schematic is of the integrated chip by peeling off the layers of metallization that, that glue these chips together and then – They've got technology for automating this. And they made the claim that chips coming, being made in China and installed in U.S. networking equipment had backdoors. 
Now, well, the there. good news, hello there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, nice. so so here I am laughing that Iran's um, government agency people are using Windows that's made in Seattle at Microsoft. At the same time, we obviously have an entire mm. infrastructure in the United States of chips from China. Now, you'd need physical access to the back door, right? Well, okay, so it now looks like this was a false positive. That, in fact, this, the, the, the interface that this, reverse, this hardware reverse engineering company found was... Uh, it, it, it was known diagnost- a known diagnostic portal into oh. the chip. Not malicious, so, in other words. Exactly. Does, it was part of the original design, not something put in afterwards. But but you know, yes, you would you would no, you wouldn't need. Presumably, there were there was a crypto key that you could use for accessing this remotely. So. You know, I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not wanting to be too quick to laugh here at you know foreign governments using, you know, the United States operating system because we're using chips which have all come from a substantial foreign government and we don't know what what has been done to them. I mean, you know, you'd have to open them up. I mean, the the problem is finding out. You have to open them up and reverse engineer every single chip that you're getting, and that's not feasible. So what it really says is it just as it's crazy for the, you know, a nation state hostile to the United States like Iran to be using an operating system developed and sourced by an American company, it is every bit as crazy for for the U.S. government and the you know critical infrastructure in the United States to be using networking hardware which comes from anywhere outside of our own borders so yeah i mean i mean these the, i'm i'm getting a real sense everything's of, you know, made in china by the way we should these say chickens, this is I, I know yeah these are these are I, I, you know in your phone and everything yep yep although, although most of the uh, apple stuff may have is, a, a, it may have a domestic, you know, label on it. Right. It may say Cisco or Linksys right. or D-Link or Netgear, but every component is of Chinese origin. Amazing. Yeah. So, what is it? The phrase "the chickens coming home to roost," Leo. I think is the, <laughs> the phrase. It's a little scary. So, Forbes, a couple of days ago, uh, Andy Greenberg has a, a is sort of is there their uh, software malware exploits guy. He did a really interesting article, uh, Shopping for Zero Days, a price list for hackers' secret software exploits. So this is, you know, Forbes.com. That's a, a, a real a magazine. And this is, again, investigative journalism. Uh, ZDNet picked up on the story. The t- their title of their take on this was U.S. Government pays a quarter million dollars, $250,000 for iOS exploit. And their summary said selling exploits to government agencies is becoming a more and more lucrative business. Hackers get paid anywhere between 
$5,000 and $250,000 for security vulnerability. And Leo, if you'll click the link that I've got there, take a look at that chart. Because what the article explains is that there's a hierarchy of payment value where the, the more difficult the exploits are to get and to find and to create, the more valuable they are on this gray market. And many hackers use third-party go-betweens to negotiate on their behalf with foreign governments. Um, apparently, Chinese hackers pretty exclusively sell only to the Chinese government, but other hackers are selling to various foreign powers. And it's big bucks. So Could be a quarter million dollars for a really juicy one. Yes. In iOS. I mean, and they're, they're, yes. I mean, that's, you know, a quarter million dollars Wow. for, for finding something. Now, the... So the, some of the terms are really interesting. For example, um, you would like to know that this bad guy is not selling, is not reselling this to many people. So one of the ways this is set up is that only as long as the exploit is not uncovered, do payments continue. So they're they're essentially as until it goes public that the 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 malware or, or the exploit discoverer receives periodic payments from the, from the one-time license that they have made to a foreign government. So clearly, it's in their interest not to over-disclose it because it would get overused and then discovered and then all payments stop. And so, for example, it turns out that the Russian mafia that has traditionally been a big buyer of these is no longer able to purchase them at the price they were because they tended to immediately uh, use and abuse them, meaning that they had a very short payment life, and so they didn't generate nearly the revenue for the discoverers. But, I mean, listen to what I'm saying. This is crazy. <laughs> this, this says there is a mature... It's capitalism. Bunch of- <laughs> Oh, it's, it's really a mature, amazing. functioning marketplace, yeah. a global marketplace for for unknown defects in highly used operating system platforms, which nation states are are purchasing in order to launch and in order to build super cyber weapons for espionage. I mean, I mean, Leo. Makes sense to me. Podcast, this would have just been science fiction. Yeah. Wow. This is mind-boggling. Wow. Yeah. And Bruce uh, Schneier weighed in very soberly um, four days ago. Oh, no. I'm sorry. More than on, on April 2nd. He said he cites these articles. He says, this article talks about legitimate companies buying zero-day exploits, including the fact that, quote, an undisclosed U.S. government contractor recently paid a quarter million dollars for an IOX exploit. And, and then, then he quotes it saying, the price goes up if the hack is exclusive, works on the latest version of the software, and is unknown to the developer of that particular software. Oh, by the way, Lee, I don't know if you noted that Adobe hacks are the least 
valuable. <laughs> Easy to come by. <laughs> uh -huh. It is it's yeah. directly related to how hard it is to hack, I think, right? Cuz exactly. iOS is the top. Chrome iOS is, is the top. Actually, this would be a this is a valuable uh Scale, yeah, because yes. uh, just above Adobe Reader on the bottom, in a way, Mac OS X, then Android, then Flash or Java, Microsoft Word, Windows, Firefox or Safari, Chrome or Internet Explorer, then iOS. Yep, going up in difficulty yeah. and platform uh, size. This has to be a little tempting to those security researchers. I mean, oh, Leo, think about it, a quarter million dollars. It's a lot of money. Yeah, please that's don't, real guys. money. <laughs> please, I beg of you. You know, and I mean, it's our it's our tax dollars hard at work, Leo. Yeah, well, because you know, you and I are paying for it because it's you know it's a government contractor that's it's buying these in million. order to equip our country's cyber weapons. I I just this just makes my eyes cross. Anyway, uh, just just to finish this paragraph. Also, more popular software results in a higher payout sometimes. The money is paid in installments, which keep coming as long as the hack does not get patched by the original software developer. And so uh, Bruce continues, yes, I know that vendors will pay bounties for exploits. And I'm sure there are a lot of government agencies around the world who want zero-day exploits for both espionage and cyber weapons. But I just don't see that much value in buying an exploit from random hackers around the world. And, you know, there he has a point. Except that the economics, as I explained earlier, really do inure to the benefit of a hacker behaving himself. So I can see that, too. He says, these things only have value until they're patched. And a known exploit, even if it is just unknown by the seller, is much more likely to get patched. I can much more easily see a crime organization deciding that the exploit has significant value before that happens. Government agencies are playing a much longer game. And I would expect that most governments have their own hackers who are finding their own exploits. One, cheaper. And two, only known within that government. So, really, really interesting stuff. It really stuff. is. surprising. And I... I got email from Kevin Rose. Now, that can't be the Kevin Rose. And it wasn't. Oh. I asked. Uh, he, he, he said... He, he, no, I know Kevin uses Spinrite, but I just, I don't, yeah. Yeah, he said a very fast Spinrite recovery, uh, sent it on May 14th. And he, and he wrote, this Kevin Rose wrote, while Spinrite has a history of going slow, it can also fix issues rather quickly. On an older computer, I had BSOD at boot up, unmountable boot volume. The first thing I did was boot it into my trusty copy of Spinrite and ran it on level two. Forty minutes later, it was complete with one unrecovered sector, though the report did say that most of the data had been recovered. I was able to boot back into Windows and back up all the data from the 40 gig hard drive, then run Spinrite again on level four. The computer is now working normally as my VPN server. So when I read that, I thought, huh, well, the guy's got a VPN server. That kind of sounds maybe like Kevin. Yeah. So I said, I wrote back. I said, hey, Kevin, I don't know whether this is the Kevin Rose, but either way, thanks for sharing your success story. I'm so very glad that Spinrite was able to help you. And he replied, nope. This is not the more famous Kevin Rose. <laughs> Poor I guy. wonder if he, he says, I wonder if he uses Spinrite. Oh, he does. I know he does. 
and you've confirmed that. Well, he used it and, on the and, screensavers. We use it all the time. Ah, right. Yeah. And so he said, this is one of the best pro- – this is the non-Kevin Rose. Kevin Rose said, this is one of the best programs I have ever used. <laughs> While it is not used as often as many other programs, when it is used, it is easily worth five times its price. Wow. To date, Spinrite has saved a total of five hard drives for me. Two desktop hard drives, 40 gig and a terabyte drive, one 320 gig hard drive in my old laptop, and two external hard drives, which oddly enough were the two drives I have that did not have a fan in the external enclosure. Using eSATA to the drive shows that during normal use, they were within one degree C of their overheating temperature. So anyway, non-Kevin, thank you very much for your Spinrite story. And thank you, Leo, for confirming that the Kevin Rose is also a Spinrite user. Of course he is. Cool. We're going to take a break. We do have questions, 12 of them, and uh, from you, our audience. And actually, we got we did so much of our of our uh, early podcast stuff that I will be surprised if we get to the, all of them. We but may we'll not. Certainly give, we'll give everybody, you know, a good hour and a half worth of podcast. And uh, <laughs> any questions that are we don't get to that are good, I will just carry over to two weeks from we, now. We try to keep it under uh, under four hours uh, on the show. Yeah. It's just a it's yeah. just a thing that we well, do. because people don't commute that far, yeah. Leo. <laughs> Some do. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, brought to you today by Carbonite.com, the great backup solution. In fact, uh, when Steve looked at all the cloud solutions out there, uh, he uh, now it's not intended as a cloud storage solution by any means, it's a backup solution. But security is good. The security is good. It is a TNO product. You can encrypt uh, using strong encryption, and only you have the key. If privacy is paramount, uh, it's a great deal too. It starts at fifty nine dollars a year, less than five dollars a month for everything on your internal drive. They don't even give you a cap, a limit on that. Um, but you can also buy external drive. Uh, uh, plans and uh, multiple computer plans. It, it's all at Carbonite.com. So check it out. Go to Carbonite.com and uh, pick the plan you want. I do invite you when you sign up for the free trial to use the offer code security now for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you'll get 14 months for the price of 12 when you buy, two free months if you use the offer code security now when you sign up for the trial offer. The other is that, uh, well, we, we get credit for it and it's always nice to know. Our sponsors like to know that Steve's show works. It should work. We talk about security and, of course, a key element in planning for security and planning for is to plan for disaster or the worst. And a good backup is absolutely key. Carbonite is continuous. It's automatic. So you never have to remember it. You never have to worry about it. It backs up to the Internet and your stuff is safe, encrypted and available anytime, anywhere. You don't have to wait for disaster. And that's where kind of it is kind of like cloud storage. You log into your Carbonite account on any computer or on a smartphone app. They have free smartphone apps uh, or even tablet apps. And there's your stuff. So it's storage. It's backup. It's automatic. It's secure. I Just try it free. That's all I ask. Uh, make sure you use the offer code security now, all one word, so that we get credit for it. That's all I ask. That and trying it. Security now. Uh, no credit card required. Just email, password, and the offer code security now, and you will love Carbonite. I use it on all of our machines. Carbonite.com. It's backup done right. All right, Steve, I've got questions. Twelve cool. of them. Uh, starting with Scott Major in Colorado Springs with a question about the Dynastat screen on... Uh, 
on the spin right. Steve, I'm running spin right on a drive that failed miserably. It was a Western Digital Network storage drive that had some data I'm trying to recover. Backups. The spin right. See, this is a, this probably was a backup drive. It was his network storage drive, and yet uh, that's they the, go bad too. They go bad too. One copy of anything, whatever drive it's on, is still not a backup. The spin right screen is covered with a lot of bees. That means bad. And the time wow. remaining counter keeps going up as it hits the B sectors. I fully expect to let this run for a while just to see what I get. And by the way, Scott, could be a while. Could be a long time. I've been trying to decipher the Dynastat screen. I'm confused with the bit numbering. I see bits 0 through 32. But isn't that one too many bits if I'm looking at things using a 32-bit word? Is there a reason there are 33 bits on the screen, Steve? <laughs> 33 <laughs> okay. bits. There is a reason. That's how many would fit. Oh. <laughs> um, okay. The Dynastat screen, it's mostly just eyewash. Um, I mean, it, it is showing you what's going on, but mostly um, it's, Dynastat stands for dynamic statistics. And it's a technique that is unique to Spinrite, which allows Spinrite to often recover unreadable data where no, at no time is the sector readable, but Spinrite can figure out what it was when it was readable. And because this takes some time, it can take up to 2,000 samples of the sector, I had to have Spinrite show you something while it was running and doing this. <laughs> and so the Dynastat Are you screen, saying it's eye candy? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's <laughs> true. It's true eye candy, but you shouldn't try to like figure out what it means. Right. Um, it's the first of all, a, a sector that's five hundred and twelve bytes is forty ninety six bits in a stream. Bits are stored in a not as like bytes at at a time, like you know eight bits abreast. They are actually stored in a linear bit string that has no byte boundaries. So that's why 33 bits is as good as 34 or 31 or 32. It's just, it's, um, Spinrite is showing you where in the 4096 bit stream the problem begins that Spinrite has located. And it's able actually to zero in on the problem and start working on it. And so, and what looks sort of like an oscilloscope diagram are the statistical probabilities of the bits from the first bad bit being zeros and ones. So it's, I mean, what it's showing you is true. It's sort of a, it's a, it's a viewport into the database, the statistical database that Spinrite is building over time as it analyzes that sector in order to try to recover its data. So that's a little tutorial on the dynastat screen it's you know again it's mostly something for you to look at um just like be patient Spinrite's going to recover this sector if there's any way possible and in fact it's able to even Spinrite will give you the data out of those 4096 bits that it can even if it can't get all of them which is again another very unique thing about Spinrite that often allows recovery to occur even when the sector could never ever be read correctly and corrected for example if this was a chunk of a directory well you might get most of the files that were linked from that that branch of the directory and that's more valuable than getting none of them so 
or, or like, you know, having the directory stop at that part of, of the file system. So that's a, just the reason why Spinner is able to so often pull off the miracles, and it is. Question two from Jason Varner, Pennsylvania, USA. Jason says, I wanted to mention AES Crypt Awesomeness. Awesome! Dear Steve, after hearing you discuss Duplicati on a recent episode of Security Now, I decided to try it out. It's another one of those uh, cloud storage systems, right? It's it's a front end for S3 ah. that is absolutely multi-platform, which is really nice. While I wasn't particularly impressed by the Linux, Ubuntu in my case, version of the GUI interface, looking into Duplicati did lead to the discovery of the awesome AES Crypt piece of software, aescrypt.com. As a relatively recent Security Now listener, I don't know if you've ever discovered or discussed AES Crypt before, but I wanted to make sure you were aware of this elegant, simple solution for AES 256-bit file encryption. I'm assuming the encryption package provided is solid. Linux users only have the option of downloading and compiling the source code. Uh, but wanted to ask for your feedback on AES Crypt. As my need for remote backup of my data is now or is not so sensitive that daily or even weekly backups are necessary, I'm now employing the following completely free and rather simple remote backup process, hopefully TNO compliant. One, make a zip file of directories to be remotely backed up with a date of the snapshot included in the file name. For example, backup.2012.0529.zip. Two, encrypt that zip file using AES crypt and a strong password, which gives you the same file with a .aes extension. Three, upload that file to the backups folder on Google Drive. While this solution isn't the most accommodating to the need for frequent backups, for instance, the entire backup file has to be uploaded each time and you have to think to do it and blah, blah, blah. It fits my needs. I guess you could write a cron job uh, to do this. Yeah. Your feedback on the AES Crypt software and my process would be greatly appreciated. Jason Varner. So I wanted to make sure we pointed people to AES Crypt. I use it oh. and I like it. And Better I'm than very... TrueCrypt? Well, it's entirely different. Okay. It is a very simple, lightweight, bulletproof AES Cypher application and cross-platform. Windows, Mac, uh, it's available in Java, in C Sharp, uh, also for Linux. Uh, it's open source. So what it is, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about what AES encryption is. This is simply a utility to give end users access to AES 256-bit file encryption. Hmm. So it's just a, it's as simple as, as you know, you use this in the same way that you use zip to zip up a bunch of files. You use this to encrypt a file. It, it asks you for a password. And that password is, is hashed and then used as the key for the encryption. And no force on earth, as far as we know, if you use a strong password, is able to decrypt it. Hmm. So it's absolutely bulletproof. Under Windows, the app does a whole bunch of nice things. With uh, It's got a, little, a, little, a nice UI, and it also will put things in the context menu. So you can right-click on a file and say, AES, crypt this. And it will encrypt it and, and decrypt it and so forth. So I, it's such a great – I wanted to bring it up. Uh, thank Jason for mentioning it. This came up in the context of Duplicati because our listeners will remember um, if they looked into Duplicati further that Duplicati 
bundles the file format into their backend. That is, the files that Duplicati uses to store at Amazon is AES Crypt compatibly encrypted. Because the other thing the AES Crypt has done is to publish their file format. So the, Ducat, the, the Duplicati people said, hey, rather than reinventing the wheel, let's use the AES Crypt file format and the cipher, which is as good as anything else. And, and the cool advantage to that is the, if anything, for, for any reason at all, you ever couldn't use Duplicati, you still have full access to those files because you can use the standalone AES Crypt to after you bring them back from Amazon to decrypt them. So and it's also just a really nice standalone encryption tool. So I just I thought I wanted to give everyone a a, a pointer to that. Ran Madhu, Ran Madhu in Australia wonders, how does Google know you're using DNS Changer? That's the malware that Google is now announced, you know, detecting and announcing. In Security Now 354 you were talking about how Google has come up with a method to determine if someone's using the wrong DNS servers. I'm completely at a loss as to how they can do this. I wasn't aware that a remote server could tell which DNS server a client was using. It would be great if you could elaborate. Thanks and keep up the great work with the show. Well, so I have not looked specifically to see how Google does this, but let's remember that Google is, if anyone in the world is, is running script on your browser. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, Google's whole, the whole focus is turning your browser into a, a, you know, a desktop surrogate, essentially. So um, I was thinking from, from my remembering JavaScript, and it's been a while since I've coded anything in JavaScript, I don't think you can get low-level enough for JavaScript to see the IP address of a, of a DNS entry that is looked up. But, if, but for example, Google could include some items on the page which are a domain that is resolved by the bad guys. Now, if your, if your DNS server, whatever DNS server you were using, resolved the, one of the bad IPs for one of those domains, then that would tell Google you were using DNS changer DNS servers still. But I don't know that it's possible for JavaScript to determine what the IP is. Now, maybe they're playing some games beyond JavaScript or all that would be necessary would be if Google found something that those servers returned differently because of their maliciousness than good servers. And, and I don't know whether there is like something Google knows that we don't know. But so my point is that if Google's page asked for a resource on a domain, which was of like of a different size or, or in any way different than what a valid non, um, uh, non-DNS changer DNS server would return, then they, then, then they could certainly detect, they could certainly tell from the nature of what was looked up by that DNS server, whether it was DNS changer or not. So essentially, 
you know, when you're running, you know, uh, even though this the the Google server can't tell, we need to remember that you know when we're going to Google, we're running Google's script on our browser, and then there's all kinds of things that they're able to do. <laughs> it's all sorts of magic. Yeah. So it would it would require that JavaScript would return this information. It returns a lot of information. It does. I don't think. I mean, Java. The Java language definitely could do this. I don't JavaScript think JavaScript is what JavaScript allows yeah. you to look up the IP for a, a domain name. But maybe it does. In which case, it'd be even simpler to just see if it's among those IP. You know, the IPs. They might send it back to Google and Google looks to see if it's among those. But again, just something, any behavior that was different about those servers uh, and specific like what they returned, that would be enough to tip off uh, that you were using those um, malicious servers. Really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Love the technology, Leo. Love the technology. Quib, (laughs) our next question is from Quib in Southern California. He says... Greetings from the past. Steve, I discovered your podcast a few weeks ago. Absolutely love it. I decided to take a casual sip from the fire hose of the episode archive. Well, it is a fire hose. There are, what, 356 total episodes. Yeah. He, uh, he says, I'm currently on 74, which is back in the Vista pre-release days. Wow. It is a bit of a wayback machine yeah, that we have. Here. I forgot. Yeah. We go that far. You sound so optimistic about how the new architecture will protect the OS from all sorts <laughs> of nasty things. I've only listened to a few new episodes, but I do know you're still doggedly hanging on to XP. I would never have guessed that five years from where I am right now, you'd be so against the new platform. For the benefit of those who haven't yet listened to the other episodes, the remaining episodes, would you give the listeners a brief overview of what went wrong? Did Microsoft get lax and start letting every passerby drop code into the kernel? Did the creators of malware find a way to bust through the protection? Or was it really an improvement for security, but other irritating issues kept you from making the switch? Thanks for the show. You are a great service to the intertubes, says Quib. So, okay. Um, <laughs> Microsoft clearly improved security dramatically from XP to Vista and fixed the things that they really didn't do that well or sort of maybe went overboard with Vista in 7, making 7 more friendly. Um, Yet, we don't see attacks which are only effective against XP. All the attacks that we see are always effective against all of them. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it, there, ha- there isn't a differentiation. I'm not seeing anything that gets 7 that doesn't, often, that doesn't also get XP. Why? Because it's still the same operating system. Microsoft comes up with new layers of eye candy and new UI features, but nothing fundamentally changes. I mean, yes, uh, address-based layout randomization gets better and DEP is, is more strongly enforced and, and you know, a few things like that. But they can't really change much without breaking all of the legacy stuff. So they're limited in what they're able to do. And you could argue that they're sort of running out of things to do <laughs> at this point. So, so first of all, looking back at all the patches we've discussed in the last year, Nothing 
is XP only. I can't think of anything that only affected XP. It's hmm. always all of them. Hmm. And so here I am using XP, not seeing any, you know, any effective improvement. I mean, these are, oh, look, we added a bunch of security features. Everybody move. It's like, okay, let, let, let's see. <laughs> Nothing showed up. Nothing. Nothing seems to be actually more secure. Right. And... And and I don't see anything that I want over on Windows, Lord knows on Vista, but even on 7. I mean, it looks different, but it's just in my way more. So it it isn't demonstrating better security. Now, that will change in two years or three years, whenever it is, that that patches stop being offered for Service Pack 3. So at that point, I'll think, okay, either... Either the bad guys will have moved off to Windows 8 and no one will even be bothering to attack XP anymore because it'll be more like Windows 98 is that for which none of these things are effective because it'll just have enough different DNA that it can't be infected. Or maybe I'll switch. I, I'm not sure. But at the moment, XP is the same as 7. In every way I can tell, every, everything I want to do is compatible with XP still, so there's no incompatibility problems, and there's no demonstrated actual effective increase in security. So why would I move? Let me, and, let by me, the way, these are all these are all free for me. I'm I'm an MSDN subscriber. I paid. So Microsoft you could 20, move. It's not like you're spending more money. Seven hundred dollars a year wow. to have access to all their OSs. So yeah, it's free. Cost me nothing to move, but except my time. Because I'm fighting with that with seven all, I, I, it just looks like a toy to me more and more. So, you know, I, I mean, I felt that way about XP compared to Windows 2000. So I'm just a curmudgeon by nature. But but at this point, I'm just digging my heels in. It's like, oh God, this thing works. Well, at some point, you're going to have to. I think there's only two years left in the uh, update cycle. Only Leo, come on. Oh. <laughs> hey, this is from five years ago. This guy's writing. So two years is nothing. It's like a blink of an yep. eye. Um. Bob Harris in New England mentions that the TrueCrypt Dropbox trick could corrupt users' data. Steven, Security Now, episode 350. we got a bunch of oldsters here. You mentioned a TrueCrypt Dropbox trick, which could maybe result in some bad things. The problem is if the folder sync utility manages to transfer an actively mounted container file system, then it would be possible for the user to mount the container file system on a different machine or machines concurrently with the original. The danger here is there is no coordination between the systems. The algorithms used to allocate new files and storage are going to be the same when the systems are the same OS. So if two or more systems try to use the mounted container file, creating new files or allocating storage, they're likely to choose the same blocks. The last system to sync their change wins, maybe. It's more likely that the files will be lost or only partially there. Or have the mixed contents of several files in them. It also is possible that the file system metadata could become corrupt, such that even a check disk or FSCK can not repair the file system, losing all the user's data. And even if the user promises they will never mount the container file system on more than one system concurrently, hey, accidents happen. It might only take one oops to corrupt the data. This dangerous trick could be tried with any number of container file systems, for example, an encrypted Mac OS X sparse bundle, some of which might just allow Dropbox or similar uh, folder syncing utilities to transfer data for an active mounted file system. I'm not sure I understand this, uh, yeah. Steve. Maybe so, you better explain. 
So this was this was so obvious to me that it made me shudder and and was definitely worth mentioning to people, although I think we're protected from it. Okay. First of all, so what he's talking about is that I know that some people are doing this, but I believe that you cannot you cannot both have the file in Dropbox and mounted by TrueCrypt. So what he's talking about is the danger of of taking a file and making it a container file for TrueCrypt, which gives you, when mounted, a drive letter, and having it also sitting in Dropbox and visible to other machines. Now, or, or copied to other machines, as I understand that's what Dropbox does, is it clones it to your your drives on other machines where it's accessible. Um, it this it is a nasty hack. The idea of of mounting a drive, which is a file that's in a shared resource that was never really designed to be shared. But Dropbox must have provision for handling desynchronized changes among files. So this might be handled by TrueCrypt, but I mean I'm sorry, by by Dropbox. Or it may not just may just not be possible to have TrueCrypt mount it when the file is is like opened by somebody else so that there's some sort of exclusivity. But Bob I think there is, is some file locking. I think so. There must be file yeah. locking. Yeah. But Bob is correct. Imagine the horror of <laughs> This file, which is nothing but the sectors of a file system, being simultaneously available to different machines that each believe it is their file system. That is, there, there's no notion that this is simultaneously any other machine has access to its sectors because that's what TrueCrypt is doing. It's a – it's – Mounting the file system means that it the 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 blocks of data in the file are virtual sectors of a virtual hard disk. So the reason I I was made to shudder <laughs> is that I mean it's like a classic like cache coherency problem or cache access conflict. Uh, any file system is excruciatingly careful to only allow access through a given port so that all of the activities behind the scenes are synchronized through that one viewpoint. And this would be like having multiple views into the raw data. And there would, if that were possible, nothing could, would prevent multiple operating systems from just going in and like, you know, allocating the same sectors for new files and just overwriting each other when they wrote those back, which would be horrific. <laughs> now, the fact that this apparently isn't a problem and doesn't happen makes me think, as you said, Leo, there's and, – and I think for Dropbox to be effective, yeah. they have to have somehow managed coherent um, – concurrent access to shared files. So something resolves this for people. But I just wanted to make sure for anyone who is – relying on this that you that you, you maybe test this or make sure that you're, you're safe uh in using this this what is otherwise kind of a cool hack 
What Dropbox does for me if there's a conflict is it creates a new file that says uh, – I'm going to see if I can find one here. Ah, uh, so it's conflict it, bra file. it branches off. It branches, and it says there's a conflict. Okay. Um, which isn't that helpful because, uh, you know – yeah, you, then, you, then, then you, how do you, you merge essentially, the two? you've forked your file yeah. system. Yeah, and that means you're forked. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, moving along. Actually, you know what? Let me take a break, and then we'll move along. Because I wanted to mention our friends at Citrix who do a fantastic product called uh, Go to Assist. Brand new in some senses, and yet as old as the hills in others. They've, they're celebrating their 10th anniversary now for Go to Assist. But that was uh, but 10 years as as the premium unattended support program which they are and they still are i mean it's just the best it's what i use actually when i support my mom uh it's very easy for your clients that's of course huge because you don't want to make the assist tool the support tool more difficult to use than you know the problem you're facing um that's why they probably have the largest market share in remote access anywhere but They've, they're not settling on their laurels, resting on their laurels. GoToAssist has now added a monitoring module. So if you are a GoToAssist user, you'll get this for free automatically. But I got to tell you, if you are not, if you have not yet tried GoToAssist and you've been intrigued perhaps by the remote support, this should put you over the top. You run the crawler. It automatically tells you what hardware and software, yes, software, even network-attached devices are on your client's network. This is really for people who want to do managed support. And make it easy. So then you can create your own custom dashboards with all of the items you need to track. You can get proactive alerts via instant message, email, or chat, or text. They'll go, hey, whoa, yo, <laughs> the toner's out, the hard drive's dead, the network's not responding, and you can leap into action. Your customers will love this. You can use then the remote support to solve the problem. I think go to go. They have day passes, but I think you're going to want to try it for a month of unlimited use to really get a sense of it. You can even provide remote support from an iPad or an Android. Amazing, amazing! You could be a support hero everywhere, even on vacation. Go to the website, visit the website, go to assist.com, browse around, just see all the things you can do. And of course, it's 100% secure. They do use AES. They do use. 128-bit SSL. They do use RSA public and private key encryption, SRP, everything you need. Look, it's all here on the website. Read up, read the case studies, see how people are using it. And then I invite you to try it free for 30 days. Visit gotoassist.com, click the blue Try It Free button, and all you have to do to try this free for 30 days is use the offer code SECURITY. You'll have to click a link there. It says promo code, question, security that's it now you're set and so are we you must try this now it's awesome if you're in support you need to know about go to assist you probably do did you know the monitoring is now a part of it fantastic go to assist.com offer code security we go on mr gibson with question number six let me zoom out i was zoomed in on that screen and go to our questions. What did I do? Did I close it? Nope. Creighton in Arizona points us to a new CAPTCHA solution. Steve, the following site may interest you. A company 
is unveiling an, a series of drag and drop logic puzzles to prove you're human. I, didn't I just read that CAPTCHA yes. had been broken? Yes, Google yeah. has been having a real problem with their uh, recapture, their their yeah. yeah their recapture solution, which they got from Carnegie Mellon, and I really like. Yeah, and it was great, but you know, and, and you know, we've discussed CAPTCHA a lot because the whole the whole problem of bots getting increasingly clever is prevalent. We talked about there was that one that was kind of like a waving flag one that I liked a lot. This one is is again another take. It's areyouahuman.com just demonstrates their technique. I'm not that impressed with it. I mean, what's what impresses me, Leo, is that it's so hard to tell. I don't know. Whether I've got a stack of pancakes. Okay, I've got good. some tools, including a daisy, a saw, butter, and maple syrup. And I guess the presu presumption is if you figure what out the, you, what the butter you and the maple off? syrup work better than yep. the saw and the daisy... I got a pizza when I tried it yesterday, and I got pepperoni and cheese, I think, or maybe tomato sauce and, and a few non-things. They're all cool. kind of drifting around. I mean, it, it is, but again, I wonder, okay, how well, hard is that? Here's the way you break this stuff. You use a human. Yeah, you that's put, the problem. You put up a porn site or a fake porn site. You redirect to, yes. And right. you put this captcha on it as an iframe. And or you, you pay people in Russia. Or you just pay there people. Is, there is a site where you can make money. A, it's a Russian site. You sit there and you solve these captures in real time. And you're only, you're only paid if you solve it quickly. And if it's correct, then you get some money added to your account. It's a little micropayment system. And so it's – and these are, you know, these are people – this is a, a quote, a job, unquote. And that's what they're doing. And the, these are, you know – the, the, these are the human front end for a bot network, which is then using this to create accounts under – in fact, it was Gmail you read about because uh, Google Mail is generally not uh, – has, has a lot of spam. And so it's generally regarded as safe and unfortunately uh, they've been having problems with their CAPTCHA. So you're right. You, it's, it's, ultimately, there's no solution. CAPTCHA is stupid. Stop using it. Thank you. Yeah, and it's annoying. I mean, I'm often, oh. I look at it, I go, what the heck is that? I, I don't know. What, if it's know, a I, high value target, it's easy to break. And if it's not, yeah. stop bugging me. But what, isn't this an interesting problem that we're having? That, yeah. that it is, but, but think about it. It's also interesting that it is actually difficult to differentiate a human from a right. computer. It's called the Turing they, test <laughs> in reverse. Can, they can, yes, they can do so much. Darth Nader in Minneapolis says, password haystacks are too good of an idea. Steve, remember when you were talking about passwords? Well, it seems your idea was too good because, like many good things, it's been foiled by those who could most benefit from it. My national bank chain made my change my password today, and their rules now include one about how you cannot use the same character three or more times in a row. Eliminating my ability to use a string of the same character as a haystack. They also told me I cannot change my password more than once in a 24-hour period, eliminating my ability to change my password until my desired password was out of the recent passwords list. Well, that's good. Well, I could still do it, but it would take over a week to do. So I guess he wa he's one of those guys who wants to reuse his old password. Yeah. Next time you have a good idea, please don't take it to the mainstream media because once the public knows about it, so does my bank. I'd like to be able to use your good ideas. Actually, well, all right, I'll let you answer this one. 
Well, I was going to say, first of all, I doubt, I mean, it's flattering, but I doubt that, that they're just know, trying to keep you from doing one, 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 yes. one, one, GRC and pace and GRC and password haystacks probably isn't yeah. the reason the bank made this change. Um, and I would, I would note that no one said you had to use dot, 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 right. dot, dot. To pad. I don't you use could, uh, repeating characters. Exactly, and I don't either. That was just an example of a way of padding. So you can definitely pad with something a little more clever. And I'm not going to offer any suggestions because anyone listening can figure out their own scheme. And I'd rather not put one out there that people go, oh, I'll use that one. So, yeah, certainly there are a way around that, a way ways around that. And... Uh, and it sounds to me like the bank has, you know, got good security policies. That you know, These are the sort of things we want them to do. Somebody in the chat room just sent me uh, a password uh, policy from, I guess it's from the state of Texas. Actually, it looks Uh-oh. like Texas State. Um, or maybe, uh, yeah, it's computer, portal.computerscience.oag.state.texas.us. Password has to be exactly eight characters long. I'm not sure what that's mm. all about. Oh, my God. It must contain at least one letter, one number, and one special character. But the only special characters allowed are at, number, and dollar sign. <laughs> A special character cannot be located in the first or last mm. position. Okay, that means two through seven. Oh. Two of the same characters sitting next to each other continue to be a set. No sets are allowed. Avoid using names, such as your name, user ID, or the name of your company or employer. Other words that cannot be used are Texas child and the months of the year a new password cannot be too similar to the previous password a password can be changed voluntarily once in a 15-day period the previous eight passwords cannot be reused this is just brain dead oh my some good stuff but mostly stupid okay so let's wrap up with this next question which is the one i referred to earlier okay um which is a good place for us to start our last question Oh, you don't want to do the motorcycle question? Cool. <laughs> um, which one did you refer to earlier? You mean the the, the no, question? No, number eight. Number eight? Okay. <clears throat> we'll get to the rest another time. Mike in yeah. Thailand. And this one is regarding uh, Flamer, Skywiper, and I, and information and infrastructure systems security. Steve, thank you and Leo for the very informative shows in the past. You performed a very detailed analysis of Stuxnet which I found more useful than many industrial control systems analysis. I work with ICS systems and see that much of the IT in use and thinking is five to ten years behind the time. I have found it very difficult and frustrating to get people to really understand the risks. Working outside the U.S., I see things from a more global, interconnected perspective. Australia sees all this as the start of cyber war. Mikko Hipponen, chief research officer at F-Secure, sees it as the future of cyber race. My question is, what is your thought on the big picture direction of all this? That is what we, your listeners, want to know. What do you think it means for the future? Thanks and best of luck to you and Leo. Are we in a cyber war? So this gets to the question that we were talking about, whether yes. President Obama did the right thing to uh, to aggressively pursue Olympic Games. I would, Yeah, I would say to escalate what may have been going on and... I mean, it is, it's, it's a real question, I think. Yeah. We, we know that from stories that we've covered that there appear to be incursions which have never been admitted by entities of some cloth in China who are 
poking at and probing and often breaking into our United, you know, U.S. infrastructure. The Chinese government always disavows any responsibility or affiliation and so forth. Although it, it, the, these things generally seem to be coming from China, which, you know, has a lot of people and a lot of Internet connections. And so statistically, maybe if even if they were random, that would be the case. But, you know, it's a really good question. The, the, my problem is that I used the expression earlier, this notion of, you know, the chickens coming home to roost. Uh, by that, I mean our technology is incredibly porous. Our security is really bad. I mean, the, it's, you know, we launch platforms that are written quickly, that are generally late. We're behind schedule management says is it secure the programmers say well yeah we think so we'd like to have a few more weeks and they say no no ship it now we'll fix it later i mean there's is that kind of approach to you know commercial commercial entities that have the wrong motivations for for publishing software which is too important arguably to be wrong. I mean, when we hear that that the drone control system is using Windows and got infected by a thumb drive, <laughs> oh, dear. you think, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I can't you know, how, yeah. <laughs> and and I mean, I I I worry that uh, Iran may be working to um, purify. Uranium for the purpose of, of building a bomb. They say they only want it for domestic power production. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and, and so you know they're running, they're running centrifuges, which you know we apparently are able to screw up once again. These, these remember, these were not even on the network, but it didn't matter right. because Stuxnet could jump from thumb drive to machine and and back in order to to infect the. The control systems. Well, you know, we're using these SCADA control systems for our dams and our nuclear reactors and, you know, huge mission critical systems. And they're connected to the Internet because, ew, it's convenient to be able to log in. Uh, anyway, Although so, these were air gapped. Uh, that's why they had to use thumb drives. Yep, and yeah. it didn't matter. Didn't we matter. Got they were still using gap. Windows. <laughs> yep, exactly. They were using Windows. So you know, and and I mean, our, our, for a long time, our listeners would send me pictures of the ATM machine with right. the the, the, the dialog box, yeah. say, e either a BSOD yeah. or more more often a a notice, you know, popped up with a button you had to click, but there was no mouse. <laughs> To click with, and and famously, you know, the big, huge Vegas um, yeah. kiosks will have like a Windows message that is, you know, right. come up on error, top of error, error. Oh, God, yeah. So, I don't know. I'm. I mean, it. This is during the course of this podcast, which what we are now in our seventh year or seven and a half year. We are in eighth, eighth year. I remember. Anyway, during the course of this podcast, <laughs> way too many. Yes, <laughs> this has gone from theoretical to way past real you know we are now in real with with flamer and before that with stuxnet and i mean i remember remember when the when stuxnet first began to happen i was initially skeptical it's like eh, we need to wait for more data i don't want to i don't want to jump to any conclusions here well 
Now we know. Yeah. And there is no question that Flamer is beyond, the, the capabilities in Flamer are beyond an individual or a small group. This is, you know, when you've got, you know, repurposed valid Microsoft security certificates that, and someone figured out or arranged that they could be used to code sign in order to, you know, in order to allow Windows Update to be intercepted. I mean, how many times That's did we wild, worried? Isn't it? That is just yeah. Wild. How many times did we worried that Windows Update was right. might be vulnerable, and all of our Windows machines would be downloading malicious code? Well, Flamer does that. I oh. love it that they can use Windows Update to update themselves. <laughs> I mean, I don't love it, but I just think that's that's pretty you, amazing. Your system has a obsolete version of the malware. <laughs> the malware. Would you like to update? <laughs> well, so this, uh, and the debate we had was really whether uh, the Fed, whether it was right for the U.S. to pursue this cyber warfare an strategy, an undeclared aggression, and and I, I think that. Uh, you know, given the alternative, and in the, in the, this started in the in the Bush White House, uh, where uh, Vice President Cheney was urging uh, bombing attacks on Iran, which would have really been destabilizing in the region. And I think they decided, well, instead of bombing these plants, let's try this. We'll and, do something and, that won't that won't hurt lots of people. Right. It'll be more it'll, a little bit more like a drone attack. If, if There's I'm some question to its efficacy. I mean, they did get you know people. It, it, Apparently, it was efficient to the point that the the uh, Iranian uh, scientists took all of the centrifuges offline because they couldn't figure out why they were failing. But I don't know if it really slowed down the enrichment process in any significant way. Certainly yeah, not as much as the bomb op might have. Optimistic estimates in that case were maybe it it knocked them back eighteen months at the right. most. So it's not a but huge. But certainly didn't sh didn't shut down their right. program. So. You know, and and we have said time and time again, oh, terrible! We shouldn't do it. Nobody should do cyber warfare. Those darn Chinese are doing it. Well, now we know everybody's doing it. Yeah. Um, and I, my, I guess my opinion is, it it's it's kind of the way it is. Yeah. Should should we? Uh, it's not like poison gas, which we all agree, all civilized governments agree not to use. Uh, it's uh, it's um, and landmines and, are not or good bio either. bio weapons. Uh, yeah. It isn't like that. Although I guess if you use a cyber attack on inf on significant important infrastructure like the electrical grid, and you brought it down, it would have some deleterious effects. I just think that this is the way war is. You know, uh, war is not a good thing, but you can't bury your head in the sand. And and we do have, for example, we have CIA agents that are operating covertly, which are sort of the same sort I of think things. This is just what you know, the, embassies or. Foreign embassies are known to be basically satellite spy centers. Yeah, we've been doing that of, for ages. Of the governments, right. yeah. I think maybe it's, you know, what's a little unnerving, Leo, is it's moved into our territory. I mean, it's moved into the purview of this podcast. Well, where uh, yeah. It's, it's become real. Secure yourself. Um, yeah. But I think that c cyber warfare is inevitable, and I think that it would be foolish of the U.S. Uh, government uh, to ignore it and not to participate uh, out of some um, moral high ground. It's, I, yeah. I just don't. I, don't I think, think that that's a weapon we need. That. It's a weapon uh, we need. We, we don't need to be worried about any moral high ground. <laughs> There's plenty of worse stuff. Uh, and I think, I think so. it's an appropriate weapon. Yeah. I do. So uh, I guess after you know after chewing on it, uh, I don't think it's inappropriate to use this weapon. In fact, in some ways, not bad. And it's not 
it, this is in some cases. Flame, Flamer was just espionage. As right. far as we know, from what's known at this point, it looks like it was an information gathering tool. It was taking screenshots and capturing uh, uh, keystrokes and looking for, you know, AutoCAD, DXF files. And now what we don't know, and this could easily change our opinion or amplify our opinion, we don't know how much incredibly valuable intelligence it was gathering. Somewhere there are probably really unhappy people who who were involved in turning off the command and control network four hours after Kaspersky announced their discovery because something vital to presumably Western intelligence gathering was taken offline. It went dark. They lost what may well have been a fantastic source of intelligence. So, you know, we're looking at it sort of from a, oh, what does it do and how does it work? We know nothing about, in detail, what it actually gathered. And in four years, boy, it may have just been a phenomenal success. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's his uh, home. That's where uh, Spinrite lives, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility and uh, and, of course, a lot of freebies he gives away uh, because he's just a nice guy. As well as 16-kilobit versions of this show in audio and uh, full transcriptions. If you want the video or the... What is that you're showing there? What is that? What is that? Is that next week? No. What that's are you up the, to? That, that's the little prototype for the uh, ketone breathalyzer. <laughs> you madman! You've done it! Does <laughs> it work? It's on its way. He's breadboarding a ketone analyzer. Well, it's yeah. about time. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Because I don't have enough things. What, what chip do you use to detect the presence of ketones? Um, there, are, there, there, are volatile, there are volatile gas sensors which will detect ethanol and, um, uh, and also acetone. The problem is that they all, they're very sensitive to temperature and humidity. And our breath is both hot and moist. So uh. the the signal I'm looking for is minuscule compared to the noise, which is temperature and humidity. So I have a second sensor, which is exactly the same technology, but designed to detect methane instead. And so the idea is that the common mode response will be humidity and temperature, and the differential response will be the content of gases that differ between the two sensors. So anyway, I'm, I'm just at the beginning what a fun of, challenge. of experimenting. I, I may be that I cannot find, it may be that breath is just too hostile because of its temperature and humidity, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm working to very quickly determine one way or the other because I am so tired of my hands are just raw from poking them with, in order to take blood several times a day, which I have been doing. Several times uh, a day? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I'm I'm spending serious money on these five dollar ketone uh, blood tests in order to monitor my ketones and get a sense for where they are. I would I can't wait to be able to you know to blow into something. And if it works, will I mean I'm not going to go into production. Don't people don't have to worry about me disappearing. I think you should open hardware. source this. You should uh, I'm, you should I'm give this absolutely away. Gonna, yeah. I'm going to open design it, and we will probably do a um, what's the site. Where these things are crowdsourced, something um, something uh, expendables. Uh, no, I'm uh, thinking. Um, 
shoot, I, I'm drawing a blank. I've I've said it to many people. It's the um, it's where everybody uh, says, "Hey, I have an interest in this," and that you you put up a pledge against a Kickstarter. Oh, that's Kickstarter. what I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah. you could kickstart it. So the idea would be. Uh, all of our listeners, it, given if it, it's possible, it would be a battery-operated handheld thing. I think you do quite well. <laughs> I, call it, I call it the keto flute since it would use keto audio. Flute. The keto flute. I've... And uh, and so, I mean, for anyone who's doing this, and I've got to say, Leo, I, I, this is a, it's good to put this at the end of the podcast so anybody who doesn't care can hit They've already stop tuned out, yeah. They're done. Um, I'm getting I'm getting so much feedback from yeah. our listeners who we have helped with these with these over the Sugar Hill podcasts. Um, several people have lost 35 pounds. Their blood tests have have normalized. One guy from Scotland said, "I smell funny." Thanks to you, Steve. Me too. But but <laughs> but he just loves what his body is doing. Yeah, so that's awesome. It, it was really a good thing. Yeah. And you feel like the keto strips are not as accurate as you'd like them to be. Is that the Well, issue? they don't continue working. There, there's an ah. adaptation in your muscles that begin to burn the um, acetoacetate. Oh, that's what's happened. Is, yes. Okay. So that you're still in it. Yes, you're still in ketosis, but the strips no longer register. Got there it. are expendable, and, uh, but unfortunately very expensive. They're $5 per test. They're they're like the glucose. So that's why testers. you do the blood tests. Yeah, yeah. That's why. Yeah, those are the little deals. And then I do a, a weekly urinalysis, and it freaks out that I've got ketones in my urine. It's like, yes, I know, I can smell. <laughs> the Sugar Hill two specials that we did. If you want to know more uh, on the Twit specials feed with Steve Gibson about uh, the ketogenic diet, and he has recommendations for reading there. But you could also go to grc.com/health for links. And if you want audio uh, of a higher quality or video, we've got that at twit.tv slash SN. We do this show every uh, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time on uh, Twit. Please watch live. We'd love having you as a live audience. But if you miss it, don't worry. Plenty of ways to watch after the fact. Do subscribe. I think that's a great thing to do. And don't forget that we do get mess- We do get questions from our listeners every two weeks. We go through a, a sampling of them, and you know those go to grc.com slash feedback. So that's how to get stuff to me. And, of course, I do keep an eye on my Twitter feed where I get a lot of great stuff, feedback from our listeners, too. And that's at S-G-G-R-C. G-R-C. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. See you next week on Security Now. Security Now.